Honor. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse um, 31. We have been in Matthew for the last several years. We have been in Matthew 25 for, uh, I thought that might be funny, Ginger, but anyway, we really have. And we have been in Matthew 24 and 25 for this will be our sixth sermon. This is known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, I wouldn't choose to preach on that if we weren't going through a book, but the Olivet Discourse is, is the teaching that Jesus gives on Mount Olive as he's describing to the disciples when he might come again. And although nobody knows the day or the hour, Jesus goes on to talk about how we should be ready and prepared. We shouldn't be foolish like the virgins and have the door shut in our face. We shouldn't be uh, wicked and lazy and uh, thrown out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And today it says we shouldn't be without evidence of our faith and cast into eternal uh, punishment. And so this is the last uh, time that Jesus actually teaches before he goes and is arrested and crucified and is buried. The sheep and the goats, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will come to those on his right and say, come, to you, come you who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king replied, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He replied, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. The word of God to God's people, let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that you have preserved these words of Jesus. You inspired Matthew to write them down. You have preserved them over the years, and now they are before us for our study. 
illuminate them so that we might be able to understand them, help us to see their practicality, and then we'd walk in your ways and give you honor and glory in the name of Christ. Amen. When I do a marriage or a wedding, I always uh, require that the persons getting married do some counseling. Not always with me, but with me uh, if you can. And I always deal with the same sorts of things. And one time I was uh, counseling uh, Julie Wheeler and her husband-to-be, Will. And we had had our first session, and I was asked, what do we do the next time? I said, we will deal with Christian problems. We will deal with money, sex, and in-laws. And Julie said, I'm not coming. She came, and now she's, you know, married, has children almost grown, written a book, done marvelous things. But what she did was she touched on something that we just, some things we don't like to talk about. And one of the things that we don't like to talk about is that Jesus is coming the second time to judge. To judge, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, the living or the quick and the dead. And so judgment is in this passage, and we don't like to face it, but it's there, and Jesus addresses it head on. And so what we want to look at is we want to look at these three things. We want to see that the Savior is coming to judge the world. The Savior is coming and he'll judge the world by the standard of practical love to the brethren. And the Savior is coming and he has eternal rewards and punishments in his hand. The first thing is that our Savior is coming as judge. You know, when Jesus comes back, some people think that there will be a secret kind of rapture. The Bible says, and Jesus says right here, when he comes back, he will come back in glory. And he'll come with the angels with him. And the dead in Christ will be raised. And all those who are believers will be caught up with him in the air. And it will be a glorious scene. He came the first time in, in, in acts of humiliation. He was born in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. He was, he was despised and rejected and he was judged and he was thought to be crazy. And his whole life was one of humiliation. But when he comes a second time, it will be in glory. It will be a magnificent scene that no one will miss. And Jesus goes on to say in this passage that all the nations will be gathered before him. All the nations, not just the ones that are living, but the ones that have ever lived. And all the people who have ever lived will stand before that glorious throne. And Jesus will judge them and cast some into eternal life and some into eternal punishment. And the story is really a simple story, and it's taken from the life of the average Palestinian, you know, who lives in the Middle East there, that they've seen sheep and goat uh, traveling together all the time. And Jesus said it will be like uh, a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. And they did that regularly, that they would get ready for the night, 
and the sheep had more wool and could be warmer, and they would oftentimes stay outside with the shepherd, and the goats would go in the barn or in the enclosed in to, to stay warm on the cool nights. And so every day when the day was over, they tried to separate the sheep and the goats. And you say, well, that's nothing to that. But, you know, it's hard to see the difference from a distance. A friend of this church, Jimmy Young, who stayed with Bill and Diane when he came and spoke here, I remember that. I also remember he took your cake when he left. Anyway, Diane had baked a cake, and when he left, he said, I hope you wanted me to have this cake. I took it. So anyway, it's amazing what you remember. But Jimmy Young went to the Middle East, and he said he was going on a sightseeing tour, and they passed several shepherds that had sheep and goat, and the guide said to him, can you tell the difference between the sheep and the goats? And he says, no, I cannot tell. It, it, and she said, that's the point. You know, we think that we can because our, our idea of a sheep is, you know, we think of fluffy, you know, pure white, you know, not. But, you know, if you go out into the, to the Middle East where they're out in the pasture, they're dirty and their and they're, they're fur, I mean, their fleece is all matted up and everything, and they look a lot like the goats from a distance. It's only on close examination that you really see the difference. And what the passage is saying is Jesus knows the difference between sheep and goats, and he will cast the goats into eternal uh, fire, and he will, and he will bring the, the sheep into his eternal joy. It's really easy to see the passage coming to its point. But that's the problem, that the point is so easy, that Jesus is coming to judge, and that everybody, 2 Corinthians 5, everybody will stand before the Lord and give an account for everything they've done in the body, thought, word, and deed. And you can look up Jesus coming to judge, and you can find at least 19 passages. And I won't take the time of reading them, but that is what our, the Bible says. And we confess it every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead, everybody. And that language bothers us sometimes. People try to deny it. They try to say that, no, you know, Jesus would not do that. You know, the Jesus I know is loving and kind, and, and he wouldn't cast anybody aside. And, and I like what uh, Shedd said, old commentary. Here's what he says about that. The strongest support for the doctrine of endless punishment is the teaching of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of man. Christ could not, could not have warned more frequently and earnestly than he did that there will be a fire that will never be quenched. There will be a worm that dieth not. Had he known that there was no future peril to, the fully, to fully correspond to them, Jesus is the person who is responsible for the doctrine of eternal perdition. He is the being with whom all opponents of this theological argument are in conflict with. That is maybe a little complicated to say that Jesus spoke more about eternal punishment and rewards than anybody else in the New Testament. And you say, well, maybe it's just symbolic. Uh, R.C. Sproul was teaching a class, and he was talking about eternal punishment, and somebody raised their hand. 
And says, R.C., uh, probably said, Dr. Sproul, uh, when you talk about being cast into hell, that's just symbolic language, right? And R.C. said, yeah, of course, that's right. And everybody kind of paused, and he said, but think about what symbolic language is. What is greater, the symbol or the reality they point to? The guy said, the reality that they point to. And Jesus and, my, and R.C. says, that's what I mean. The symbol is the lake of fire, but the reality is even worse. Just like heaven is beyond your imagination, and that heaven is portrayed in the Bible with symbolic language, I think, of pearly gates and streets of gold, it's more beautiful than that. It's more precious than that. And being cast into eternal separation from God is probably the worst thing that you could imagine. No, you can't even imagine. And if you think about getting rid of the doctrine of eternal punishment or eternal rewards, then you basically pull the heart out of Christian religion. That what did Jesus come for? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What do our sins deserve? Our sins deserve the wrath and curse of God. And what did Jesus do on the cross? He, he was a substitutionary atonement for our sins. He died for us. He took our wrath. That's the reason we say in the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, He descended into hell, the outer darkness, the forsakenness of God, the being left on the cross, abandoned. He did that for us. He substitutionary atonement. The Word in the Bible for atonement is propitiation. And that word propitiation is really means a sacrifice that will take away the wrath of God. And the whole gospel is wrapped up in that Jesus came to save you eternally. And without that, there's really no Christianity. I'll read what Robert Rayburn say, says. Take away hell, and the reason for Christianity disappears. It will be an idea hanging in midair. Men are doomed, and Christ came to save them. There is a salvation from that doom for all who believe in Jesus. Take damnation out of the equation, and you have nothing left. There's no salvation, for there's nothing to be saved from. There's no Savior because we don't need one. There's no gospel because there's no good news. There's no longer any message of deliverance from death and judgment. And no great love at the center of the universe, a love that came down to save a people from the consequences of their sin. Do you see how central it is to our doctrine that we have a doctrine of judgment, of separation into life or separation into death? Reinhold Niebuhr said this about liberalism, which denies all of that. Their gospel is a God without wrath, that brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through administration of a Christ without a cross. Westminster Confession of Faith said that there is this doctrine in the Bible, the final judgment of God, that God might deter sinners from evil actions and might console the saints in their afflictions in the world. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. The second thing, though, is the Savior not only coming to judge, he's judging by a standard, a standard that we call practical love. 
as you study this passage, you begin to see that Jesus is, quote, judging by this, what they did in love, this practical love to the brothers. Whether they gave them something to eat or something to drink or clothes to wear or visit them in the hospital or the, or the, or the prison or gave them clothes when they were naked. It seems like that Jesus says they will go to the eternal reward for they did this. And we raise the question, obviously we raise the question, well, I thought we believed in justification by faith. This sounds like we believe in justification by doing good. And that what I really need to do is I really need to start joining clubs that do good. And I need to start doing things good. I need to up my visiting and up my giving and up my... And we know that's not what Jesus is saying here. We're justified by faith. But faith that saves is never alone. It's always active. It's always working. It's always doing. There's no conflict between what Jesus is saying here and where he says elsewhere. And in the book of James, James makes it even clearer. Listen to what James says in 2.14. What good is it, my brothers... If a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If anyone says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is death. Someone says, I have faith. Some, some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. That faith is never alone. And what Jesus is teaching against here is what we would call dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy is believing all the right things, but doing absolutely nothing. Dead orthodoxy is I believe in the Bible being in there, and I believe God's a creator. I believe in the Trinity. I believe that Jesus came, you know, as, as born of a virgin. He was sinless. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. But you assent to all of that, and it affects your life in no way. That's dead orthodoxy. And what this passage is saying is that those who are, are brought into the precious presence of God are not dead, they're alive. Their faith is alive. They're doing things. Now, here's the big, big question. Who are they serving? There are four views, but two of them can be thrown out kind of easily, so I'll just mention two. One is the poor in general. All that are poor, all that are needing a clothe, all that are needing food. And so the role of the church becomes a social gospel type thing. That, that our job is to make sure that we have agencies and ministries that feed and clothe the poor and minister to the prisoners and all of that. And so the, the people ministered to are anybody in need. And so that makes the church indistinguishable from the Junior Auxiliary, the Rotary, the Lions Club, the Kiwanis Club, the Optimus Club. That if we're just all doing good, that God is going to judge us by doing good. But 
I don't believe that's what the passage is teaching. The passage is teaching doing good to your brothers and sisters in need. And when the Bible uses the term for brothers, it rarely uses that for any other way than to talk about the family of God. It talks about every now and then about their brother. Jesus had brothers, about siblings and stuff. But the Bible never talks about your brothers as meaning the whole world is your brother. The whole world is your family. That what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about, do you have a practical love for Christian people in need? Let me expand that a little bit more. You don't have to turn there, but you can. You go back to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is sending out the disciples two by two, and they're going to go out, and they're going to uh, preach the gospel and cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead and stuff like that. And he tells them not to take anything. You know, don't take any extra sandals or extra clothes. You know, stay with whoever I have you. You know, eat what they set before you. And if they won't, you know, shake the dust off your feet. You know the whole context. And then after he gives them these instructions, here's what he says. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, will receive a righteous reward. And if anyone receives, gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple... I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. That Jesus is using the same language here. That he's urging the church, the early church, that the way the gospel is going to be spread is through these apostles and people like these apostles. And they're going to come into your town and you're going to have to take care of them. They're going to have to have a place to stay. They're going to have to have a place to eat. They might need clothes for the winter. And if they get in prison, they don't have a, you know, a prison commissary that somebody has to go take food to them. Or, and like, like Paul asked, I, I'm in the winter, bring me my books and bring me a blanket. And when they're persecuted and having their property taken away to meet their needs like they did in Acts. And so what Jesus is talking about in this passage, in this passage, is do good to all people, comma, but especially to the family of faith. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Another reason I believe it says is saying this is because when Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. There's an identification of Jesus with these people. And Jesus is not identifying with every person when he says that. When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Let me explain what I mean. In in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was being converted, and he was uh, persecuting the church, and he was holding the robes of Stephen when he died, and he was trying to snuff out the way, and Jesus strikes him blind on the road to Damascus, and what did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, I'm not persecuting you. But what Jesus is saying, if you persecute the church, 
you're persecuting me. There's an identity of God with his people, and that's what it's saying. It's not undermining that we're to help the poor. That's in, in all the passages. If you go to, go to uh, Proverbs and go into the uh, Old Testament law, you'll see the ways that we help the poor. But listen to what uh, Knox Chamberlain says. One cannot read the Gospels without recognizing Jesus' compassion on the materially impoverished and the physically afflicted. There's no doubt. Yet Jesus' principal concern about man's relationship with God, not his environment, is the single mission he has to save his people from their sins, not from their poverty, not from their hunger. He allowed nothing to deter him from his mission. And it is his mission and his response to it that are in view in this discourse in Matthew 25. So, the passage is saying, do you practically love the people of God? Do you practically love the people of God? Let me list three or four ways. One, notice in this passage that Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. The least of these, not the greatest of these. You know, we could find, if the governor wanted to come to speak or something, we could find, uh, you know, 10 or 12, 15, 20 different families. But if we found a common old person to come, we'd probably have a difficult time finding a place for them to stay, wouldn't we, you know, usually? You know, if you had social media back in those days, and they were arranging a, a rally, a revival, a great awakening, or whatever they want to have, and they were advertising the speaker, and it was Peter or Paul coming to town, everybody would want to meet him, what about Thaddeus? You'd go, you want me to keep Thaddeus? You know, who is Thaddeus? We know nothing about Thaddeus except he was an apostle. The least person. The least person. You know, they said that missionaries are a bunch of nobodies trying to glorify somebody. You do this to the nobodies. The people that nobody know about. You know, it makes me think of, you know, when you... When you go out and visit, let's say, in the nursing home or if you have to in the prison, if you have folks in prison, which we have in the past, of course. You think nobody notices. The Lord does, to the least. And it's the smallest deed to the least. It's food and water and a coat and a visit and a room. It's not giving enough money so your name can be over a building. It's not doing something sacrificial like going and living in the jungle. It's not giving up all your money and living impoverished. 
that we will be judged by the way that we do the little bitty things of life. It grows out of us naturally, organically, spiritually, because we're new creatures in Christ. We have, we have new deeds and new actions. We have the fruits of the Spirit. They're small. Nobody is going to write up the fact that you took a casserole to somebody that just recovered from surgery. So small things. It's uncalculated things. When they were rewarded for, Jesus says, you did this to the least of my people. You did it to me. You fed the hungry. You gave the thirsty. You did the water, you know, and all that. And they said, when did we do that? It was so much a part of them, they didn't even recognize that they had done it. They didn't remember they had done it. It grew out of them, as we call it, organically. Here is what one writer says these deeds must be done uncalculatingly those who helped did not think they were helping Christ and piling up eternal merit they helped because they could not stop helping it was a natural instinctive uncalculating reaction of a loving heart you know some of the deeds that you will be praised for will be like I don't even remember doing that And another thing to notice about their gifts, they're not to the least, and they're, they're small deeds, and they're uncalculated deeds. And the judgment is by deeds of omission. I just want that to sink in. When you and I think about people that deserve to be separated from the presence of God, we think about murderers, adulterers, homosexuals, people who do thieving, you know, people who are idolatrous, incestuous. And what Jesus says here is you didn't do it to anybody. The true evidence that your heart has not been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ is that you have no love for anybody but yourself. You, you don't love your neighbor. You don't love other people. You, are a, you protect what you have. And Jesus says, because you didn't do this. It's, it's not that he's judging them by their works, but their heart didn't care about people. They didn't care if you were sick. They didn't care if you were naked. They didn't care if you were in prison. They didn't care if you were hungry. And so the question says, is your heart involved in practical love to God's people first, and then to the greater world after that. Spurgeon tells a story. You've probably heard it if you've listened to Tim Keller. Tim Keller got it from Spurgeon. I don't know where Spurgeon got it from. He might have made it up. Uh, Spurgeon tells a story about this king, and this king was having an event, and while he was out in, uh, in the public's eye, this man brought a big carrot to him. And he told the king, he said, this is the nicest, biggest, most beautiful carrot I've ever grown, and I want you, king, to have it. And the king was so touched by that carrot, he said, wow, thank you. And he said, because of your great love for me, I'm going to give you this great big plot of land right outside the castle. It's yours. 
and there was a man who raised horses, and he thought in his mind, he said, hey, if he got that much land because he gave a carrot, what will I get if I gave a horse, a stallion? And so he went home, and he got his most beautiful stallion, and he brought it to the king, and he said, here, king, here's a stallion. I, I just want to give it to you. The king said, thank you, and turned to walk away. And the guy said, wait, 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 wait. You gave that guy land because he gave you a carrot. What are you giving me? He says, he gave me a carrot. You gave the horse to yourself. He gave it just to be rewarded, which is not really giving. It's trying to buy. And this passage says our giving is to be organic and natural. Let's rush to the next point. Christ's sentence is eternal. He offers eternal life or eternal punishment. Eternal fire, the lake of fire. So these are hard passages, and we're not going to look at what all of that means. We're going to look at just the, the, what the blessings are. He says, you're blessed if you do that. Enter into the inheritance and the kingdom I had for you planned before the, in, before the world even began. Jesus is saying that, reminding you, this is what God says about you. To be blessed is a, not a subjective feeling, it's an objective fact. God is saying you're blessed if your heart has been changed by the, by the Holy Spirit and you're living lives of practical love. You're blessed. And this life, this kingdom and eternal life that you're going to enjoy is an inheritance. How do you get an inheritance? Somebody has to die. And we are going to be inhabitants of heaven because of the life and death of Jesus. The Bible is a New Testament. It's the will that's written for us. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to encourage us. He not only wanted to deter sinful activity, but he wanted to encourage us in our afflictions and the difficulties of life. He wanted to encourage you that nothing, nothing you ever did for him will go unnoticed or unrewarded. Nothing. Not even a cup of water. And he wants to encourage you who have lived through hard times that no evil is going to be left unpunished. The person, I hate to use this, the person that killed your relative will not go unpunished. That's consoling. And what that does to us, it takes out of our hands the, the desire for revenge. Vengeance is the Lord's. I will repay. And so this doctrine encourages us that God will not overlook our actions or the evil done to us. But we still have this question. We're going to stand before the Lord. We're going to stand before the Lord and answer for everything we said and done and thought. That's pretty scary, isn't it? This has really helped me this week to read uh, once again uh, the Bible in the future. This couple paragraph, uh, a couple of pages by Hukama. Good stuff. Here's what he says about standing before the Lord, knowing that we, all our righteousness is filthy rags. 
all those words and things we said and did we shouldn't have done are going to be there. But here's what Hukuma says. The failures and shortcomings of believers, therefore, will enter into the picture on the day of judgment. I'm going, well, that's not comforting. But, and this is the important point, the sins and shortcomings of believers that will be revealed in judgment are forgiven sins, whose guilt has been totally covered by the blood of Christ. Therefore, as we said, believers have nothing to fear from the judgment though the realization that they will have to give an account of everything they've done and said and thought should be for them a constant incentive for fighting against sin and concentrate, consecrated living to Christ. Our sins will be brought out, but just like the evil actions will be to the glory of God's judgment on the wicked, the reward to the righteous will be God's glorious grace that he used sinners like us. And we and everybody else will be amazed. You have it in your handout, I mean in your insert. And I, I, I printed it there so you could maybe cut it out and put it in your Bible or something. Look at, look at what it says, Heidelberg question number 52. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has re removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly glory and joy. I know we're running short, but I really would like to use this last illustration so you can think about it as you go home. There was a man by the name of, this is a short story, a man by the name of John Blanchard who was in a Florida library. He was looking at a book that he'd taken off the shelf, and he began to reflect not on the book, but somebody who had written notes on the side of the page. The notes were more interesting than the book. So he looked in the front of the book, and he found this lady's name, and her name was Miss Hollis Maynell. And he decided he would look up Miss Hollis Maynell. And so he's in Florida. She finds out she's in New York City, but he gets her address, and he writes her. Soon thereafter, he shipped overseas for war, to fight in World War II. But during his deployment, uh, Miss Hollis Maynell and John Blanchard write back and forth, and John asked for a picture. She said, no, let's not get into that. Let's just uh, encourage one another. And then when he came home, uh, she said, okay, meet me at Grand Central Station at 7 o'clock. And I'm going to read the rest of it to you. You'll recognize me, Miss Maynell said, by the red rose I'll be wearing on my lapel. So at 7 o'clock that evening, he was at the rail station looking for a girl whose hearty love but whose face he had never seen. Mr. Blanchard relates the way this happened and the rest of the story. A young woman was coming towards me. Her figure was long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls behind her delicate ears. Her eyes were blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness, and the pale green suit she had looked like springtime come alive. I started 
towards her, entirely forgetting a notice that she was not wearing a rose. I was moved. A small, provocative smile curved on her lips, said, You going my way, soldier? She murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made a step closer to her, and then I saw Hollis Maynell. She was standing directly behind this beautiful girl, a woman well past 40. She had her graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump. Her thick ankle feet were thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in, green, in the green suit walked quickly away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keenly was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing to meet this woman who had a spirit of compassion and upheld my spirit during the war. And there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes were warm and had a kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate. My fingers gripped this small blue leather book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious and valuable. I squared my shoulders, I saluted and held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke, I choked in somewhat a bitter disappointment. I am Lieutenant John Blanchard. You must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad to meet you. Can I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered. But this young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said if you were to take me out to ask to take me out to dinner, I should go ahead and tell you that she's waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said this is some kind of a test. Sometimes Jesus pins the rose on the least of these people as a test for you to see if you really love him or not. Think about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. Would you work in our hearts that we might love the people of God, uh, extended beyond that the poor and impoverished in the world. May our heart be an evidence of the love of Christ had for us. We thank you that you love us, and you love us so much you gave your own Son, God, that we might have life everlasting. And so we thank you for what is ahead because of the gospel and because of grace. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.